Our God and Father, Lord, we do praise you this day and we glorify you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy which follows us all the days of our life. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus by which we have been redeemed from our sins and forgiven through his great work upon the cross. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this great privilege that our sins have been forgiven. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who guides us into all truth and teaches us and leads us. And, oh, Lord, we, we thank you that he is at work in us, both to will and to do according to your good purpose, that, Lord, we would be sanctified and made holy and conformed into the image of Jesus more and more as the days go by. I pray that this morning as we look into your word that we would be encouraged to pursue you, to put our trust and our faith in you, O God, and we thank you for the great privilege that we have to gather in this place and to study and proclaim your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well with that we're back in our study of 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to be picking up on our lesson today on page 88, uh, right where it says, tension between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians concerning eminency. Okay? Tension between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians concerning eminency. Before I go there, I wanted to, I've been bringing these books for like four weeks and haven't mentioned them yet. Long time ago, I gave a bunch of book recommendations for study, for further information on the background, First and Second Thessalonians, and for different things concerning the end times. So I'm going to bring these up again. This one's called A Case for Historic Premillennialism. Okay? A Case for Historic Premillennialism. This is a relatively new book. I think it came out in 2009. Blomberg. Craig Blomberg and Sung Wook Chung. These guys go to Denver Seminary. It's a really good book. Uh, okay. The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views by Klaus. The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. In this book, he discusses the difference between Amillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, and historic premillennialism presents four views. Okay? The meaning of the millennium, Klaus. If you don't have a good commentary on the book of Revelation, this is my favorite one George Eldon Ladd. It's a commentary on the whole book of Revelation. It's a great one, it's a good one. Um, so there you go, George Ladd. And then last but not least is this book by George Ladd called The Blessed Hope, in which he, uh, first half of the book, he deals with the background and history of the doctrine of dispensational premillennialism or pre-trib, pre-tribulational premillennialism. First half of this book, he tells you where it came from, who popularized it, how it got here, so on and so forth. The second half of this book, he's dealing with the texts of Scripture that deal with the timing of the rapture from a post-tribulational viewpoint. George Eldon Ladd. Okay, the blessed hope. Okay. Now that we got through all that. Okay. So, as I've been studying this passage in, in more and more depth in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm, I'm always struck by this kind of overarching theme that I, I find in all these scriptures that I'm looking at. And it's this. It's kind of portrayed in Jesus' words when he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. People are buying and selling, building and planting, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. And this is the thing that is just so stark to me when I'm 
in my study and I'm focusing on all these scriptures and I'm trying to expose the text of 2 Thessalonians and I'm looking in Daniel and I'm looking in Revelation and I'm looking at the Olivet Discourse, this thing just dawns on me that people in the world are just going along with their business and they don't realize how serious the Christian faith is. And they don't realize how serious their destiny is. Even Christians don't realize how serious this whole thing is. And we're just going along through life and we're just doing our thing. And, and we have a tendency at times to be rather complacent about our faith. And I say we because I have a tendency to be complacent about my faith. And when I study these things, I'm struck with the idea of how serious this matter is. And when I, I, today I was doing my study, I'm doing a character study on the Antichrist. And the more I, I get in view who this man is and what he does, the more I realize how deceived the world really is. That they're going to receive this man who is, the Bible calls him the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, or if you will, the son of destruction. He's the man that John calls the Antichrist, okay? And he is sent by God, if you will, to deceive the nations of the world. That's who this guy is. And uh, that is exactly what he's going to do. And that is exactly what the text of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12 tells us. And it's just amazing to me how stark this idea is. And we don't realize it. Even as we are here going through our text and we're thinking about all these things, we don't realize the severity of the whole world following after and worshiping the Antichrist and being plunged into a time that Jesus calls great tribulation, such as unequaled from the beginning of nations until that time. That is... Uh, the destiny of the world as we know it. The world as we know it today is plunging into a day when it is going to follow and worship the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to gather all the nations of the world in, together in deception to make war against Christ. And Christ is going to come and make war with them and deal out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's how stark and that's how important the Christian faith is. And if you're not a true believer in that day, you're going to be swept away in deception. That's what our text in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 12 says. Hopefully you've read it 40 times by now or more. And hopefully you're reading in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11 and 12 and in Revelation chapter 13 where all of these things really come into focus. And the more you kind of mull over those texts, the more it all kind of makes sense. The more that you look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, you see how Jesus is just laying these things out and he's describing what it's going to be like and there's so much revelation in the scripture about these days and these times and this man and what's going on and what's going to happen. But the thing is, we can't be like the world. We can't just be buying and, and selling and planting and building and marrying and giving to marriage up till the day that Noah entered the ark and then... When we're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon us all. We can't be like the foolish virgins who don't have any oil in their lamps because they've gotten drunken or because for whatever reason they have not been paying attention and they have strayed away from the master's warnings about being alert and being ready for his return. Because when the cry rings out, let me tell you, there's going to be some wise virgins and there's going to be some foolish virgins. And the wise virgins, they go in to meet the bridegroom. And the foolish virgins, they are left behind. And when they get left behind, the Bible says they will knock on the door and plead and say, Sir, 
open up for us and he will say, away from me, I never knew you. That's the fate of those who are left behind. Okay? The idea that's portrayed in the parable of the ten virgins is really clear. Be ready when the bridegroom returns, because if you're not, it's over. You get it? That's the main application, if you will, of the parable of the ten virgins. And that's serious business. Are you with me? So the world is headed for this destiny I'm describing to you. Make no mistake about it. And what you see going on right now in the world is the secret power of lawlessness that is at work in the world, (laughs) bringing these things to a culmination. What's going on in the world, what's going on in the media, what's going on with mankind is they're headed for this destiny. Okay? Question is, are we unaware? Are we truly sons of day? Like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 3 and 4 and following there. He says, that day will not overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you're sons of the day. You're not sons of the night. You're going to be ready for these things. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, See, I have told you all these things in advance. So, if you will... Jesus is coming again, and he's going to make all the evil in this world right. And when he comes again, he's going to take his people to be with himself. So shall we be with the Lord forever. And the destiny of this present world, this present darkness, is going to be a horrific end that's going to come at the personal hand of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his mighty angels who will be revealed with him in flaming fire. To put it in the vernacular of one of our hymns that we sing, soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Are you with me? He's going to show up in the clouds with power and with great glory. Bible says, all the nations of the earth will mourn. And men will seek to hide in the caves and in the rocks and say, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's how the Bible describes that day. That's serious business. You with me? This person of the Antichrist, he's not just some fictional fairy tale out of the Bible. He's a real man. And I want to tell you, I, I see very clearly a progression toward the deception of this world so that it reaches a place where it can actually follow and worship this Antichrist who is going to set himself up, Paul says, in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God and exalting himself, opposing God and exalting himself above every so-called God. He's going to claim to be God. Revelation 13 says, all the, sorry, I don't want to misquote it. Revelation 13, verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. All the world, Bible says, will worship him. That's where we're headed. That's where this present darkness is headed. That's serious business. Would you agree? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to deal with the idea of eminency here, and then I'm going to move on into the text from Second Thessalonians 4 and following. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 4 through 2, verse 4 through 2, verse 12 is a description of the things that the Antichrist does, who he is, and what he does. And uh, so with that, I'm going to be presenting a lot of information that is really a character study on the person of the Antichrist. 
And uh, we don't frequently teach from Old Testament books here too regularly. Um, and so I don't really often have an opportunity to expose this kind of data. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to be taking you to, to Daniel. And we're going to be talking about what Daniel has to say about this. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to see how those things relate to the text of Second Thessalonians and who this person of the Antichrist is. And you'll be surprised to see how much the Bible says about this man and how much uh, vivid description the Bible gives about that time just before the second coming of Christ when the man of lawlessness is revealed. So with that, I'm, 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 I'm on page 88 of the, of the handouts. And uh, about halfway down there, it says, Tension between First and Second Thessalonians concerning eminency. So... You're familiar with the, with the idea of eminency, right? So when, when we say that the return of Christ is imminent, okay, what we mean is, number one, it will certainly happen. Okay, it's for certain. He's coming. All right? But more than that, in the Bible, he's presented as coming soon and coming in an, at an unexpected time. The Bible says, no man knows the day or the hour. Jesus said that. He said, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. And uh, he, he said, not even himself in his humanity knew that. Nor the angels in heaven, he said, knew that. He said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, he said, they, they asked him the question, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that have been fixed by the Father. But he said, you shall receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. He says, look, here's the deal. About when I come set up my kingdom, it's not for you to know all of that. Instead, what I want you to know is you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the world, which is exactly what the church has done. The church has been a witness for the gospel of Christ for the last 2,000 years, and men have been saved from every tribe and language and nation and people, right? And we're still seeking to fulfill that goal even now. Well, so um, there's this idea then that in the book of 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is describing the parousia, or the second coming, the word parousia is coming, as it's described in, in English, the, the English word. And um, in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul describes that coming, it's in chapter 4, verses uh, 15 through 17. And there he says, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call, with a, with a voice of command, with a loud trumpet call, and the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. Paul describes a personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. That is what his coming is. And when that happens, he will both raise the dead who are in Christ, and he will... Uh, catch up is the English or rapture the living church at that time to be united with the dead in Christ. And the Bible says, so shall we be with the Lord forever. When Paul describes that coming, right? He says that it's going to happen suddenly. He goes on to describe in, in chapter five of first Thessalonians, he goes on to describe that to the people in the world, they're all saying peace and safety. They don't even have a clue what's about to happen, right? But he says, when that day of the Lord happens, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It will be to them like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. They will not be paying attention. They will be unaware. He says, though, of the Thessalonians, reading from chapter 5, verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, and so he presents a contrast, 
You, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. And so his point is, is that to the unbelieving world, man, that thing's going to be sudden and unexpected. But to the church, what? They're going to be prepared. Why? Because they're going to follow Christ's teaching. And now I refer to the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is telling them, be on the alert, be ready. It's like a thief breaking into a man's house. And if he had known when the man was coming, he would have been ready. And so Jesus exhorts the church to be ready. How? By paying attention to the signs of his coming and of the end of the age, which he had just laid out for them just prior to the warning about being ready. Be on the alert, he says. See, I've told you in advance all these things that are about to happen. In the account in Luke 21, Jesus says, when you see all these things happening, he says, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's even right at the door, he says. He's explaining to the Christians what those signs will be like just prior to his coming. And of course, we know this. We know, we, we know what the Antichrist does. We know who he is. We know what he looks like. We know that he is the greatest purveyor of false gospel there has ever been. He even sets himself up and declares himself to be God. And then we see the whole world follow after him and worship the beast. And of course, he wants to implement a system by which you get marked on the forehead or on the right hand. Right? When he's revealed, he makes no bones about it. Right? He wants your allegiance, and he's going to ask for it in no uncertain terms. Are you with me? But listen, sons of the day, we know what that looks like. Why? Because I've told you all these things in advance. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. You see what Jesus is saying? So, there is a problem, though, that when, when people look critically at the text of 1 Thessalonians and at the text of 2 Thessalonians, when they look at the text we've been studying in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 3, they see a very clear timing that's laid out for the parousia. <clears throat> now, we request you, brethren... 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul lays out a very clear timing. And he says that that coming parousia, which he identified back in chapter 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, as the Lord descending from heaven, personal, visible, bodily, right? He said that's not going to happen, right, until the man of lawlessness is revealed and the apostasy or the rebellion occurs. So when they read 2 Thessalonians, they see a very clear timing of events that precede the second coming of Christ. That's the, the very clear, plain reading of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. That causes them to say, well, why then in 1 Thessalonians does Paul say it's sudden and unexpected? And, uh, of course, my answer is he doesn't say that. He says to the Christians... That day's not going to overtake you like a thief, right? You're going to know. You're going to be aware, right? Well, and when Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, that's his goal. His goal is to tell them, look, the day of the Lord hasn't already come. How do you know? Because you haven't seen the Antichrist and you haven't seen the rebellion yet. That's effectively how Paul reasons. However, the critics of Scripture, they look at that and they say, well, it certainly looks like there's an eminency that's presented in the book of 1 Thessalonians, but in 2 Thessalonians, we have these very clear signs that lead up to the return of the Lord. With all of that background, let me start reading on page 88. 
that there's a tension between First and Second Thessalonians concerning eminency. At this point, I should also like to deal with eminency and the tension between First and Second Thessalonians. While 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 affirms that Christ's coming will occur at an unexpected time, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 says that definite signs will appear before Christ returns. Note also that this tension between unexpectedness and signs preceding Christ's return exists in the Gospels, including in the Olivet Discourse of our Lord. So what I'm saying is that you see that tension anywhere in the Bible where eminency is concerned. Because here is Jesus describing what will be the signs of his coming. And you remember how I explained to you what a sign is? I mean, you don't see the signs after the exit. Are you with me? If you did, they wouldn't be signs. True? So you're driving down the road, see a big blue sign. What's it say? Rest area. Right? Five miles. Right? Then you get... Four miles down the road, there's another big blue sign. Rest area, one mile, right? And then uh, exit 517, right? So then you get down the road, you come to exit 517, big blue sign, arrow, uh, arrow rest area, right? What are those signs doing? <laughs> They're telling you that, guess what? The eminent rest area is here. <laughs> Are you with me? So when Jesus is answering the question, what will be the signs of your coming, what's he telling them? These are the things that you're going to see that are telling you that my coming is, in his words, very near, even right at the door. And so that, see, I have told you all these things in advance, he says. Right? When you see these things, he says, lift up your heads. Right? Because your redemption is drawing near. The day of your deliverance is right around the corner. Because we all know when Christ comes again, he's going to deliver his people. Amen? So, <clears throat> this is my point. That not only does that tension exist in Paul, it exists in Jesus too. And when the doctrine of eminency is taught, there's always a tension there because there's always signs preceding the end. There's always signs. That's how the un end times unfolds, and it's all based on Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He is telling us what the signs are. Throughout Scripture, we are told of the certain and imminent return of Christ, and yet we are given signs that will precede his coming in vivid detail and accompanying order of events leading up to his return. This tension, however, is easily resolved by an examination of these passages and a clear understanding of the intent and scope of the doctrine of eminency. In short, no one knows the exact day or hour that Christ will return. But Christians are told the season of his coming will be something they can clearly identify by the signs and events leading up to it. And I give you a whole list of scriptures there that make that point. Signs and events that will be deceptively unclear to the unbelieving world. You see that? You see how that's in the Olivet Discourse? And you see how they see, and, and Jesus says, to the people in the world, what? Man, they're just going right along, happy-go-lucky, buying and selling, planting and building, marrying and giving to marriage. Until when? Until the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. What's Jesus' point? The people in the world, they're not paying any attention. It's just like Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, when they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. Good night, man. Antichrist has showed up. He's got all the answers. The world's economic woes are fixed. Now we have a global currency. Now everybody's got a, an ID tag. Now you can just go down to the buy, sell, or trade and just show your hand, and there you go, man. Pow. You're on to the global currency. You're on to the global economic system, right? I got all the answers. The whole world will worship him and follow the beast. You understand? Somehow, the deception is so powerfully strong that the whole world follows this man. Not only in his economic ways, but you understand he has a very religious perspective. Because he sets up, Revelation 13 says, he sets up an image 
that the false prophet sets up an image in honor of the Antichrist, okay, that causes all who do not worship the image to be killed. So when Paul says he sets himself up in the temple of God and demands him, uh, and, and, and exalts himself above God and demands to be worshipped, okay, this is his goal. He's not only an economic uh, master of intrigue, in the words of Daniel 8, right? He's also a very deceptive false prophet who does lying signs and wonders that deceive even the elect, if it were possible. Understand what this guy's like? It says in Revelation 13 that he causes fire to come down from heaven in full view of men. That's the kind of power this guy has. He's so powerful, he sways the whole world. Okay? So, that's what I'm saying. These signs and events will be deceptively unclear to the unbelieving world. But you sons of the day, you're not like them that that day should overtake you like a thief. Right? Ain't nobody putting a mark on your hand. Right? Ain't nobody putting a mark on your head. You want to chop my head off? Go ahead. But you ain't putting no mark on it. You with me? Of course, that's been the Christian testimony ever since there has been a Christian testimony. We refuse to worship your false gods. Just like those three Hebrew children. Right? We're not going to bow down to your image. So, when we speak about eminency, it is not entirely accurate to say that Jesus can come at any moment. Is that shocking to you? No. It shouldn't be if you understand the concept of signs. You with me? Because signs tell you what? What's coming. What's right ahead. That's the whole part of the discourse. That's the whole reason for the discourse. They're asking the question, what's going to be the signs of your coming? And Jesus lines them all out. This, 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 that, 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 that. And immediately after that, then I show up. Right? Okay. But rather, his coming is in fact certain, and that when he comes, it will be a time of great deception. So, I understand that may be something very different than what you've always heard in church. What? That Jesus can come at any moment. I'm saying Jesus can't come at any moment. Well, someone might accuse me then of waiting for the Antichrist instead of waiting for Jesus. I think that that is exactly what I'm saying. So, I have no sacred cow to knock over about Jesus returning at any moment. Because I understand that the Bible explains that Jesus can't return at any moment. Why? Because there's signs that precede his coming. And that I'm a son of the day. And that day's not going to overtake me like a thief. And I'm going to see very clearly how he described what would happen that's going to precede his coming. He told me everything in advance. I know what to expect. I know what I'm looking for. And, and so if you will, the, the question may even be raised, well, how can you be waiting for Christ? How can you be expecting the eminent return of Christ, yet thinking that the Antichrist is going to show up some three and a half years beforehand? Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm a guy who represents that view. I'm waiting for Christ. You hear me talk about waiting for Christ all the time. I'm preaching to you constantly that Christ is on his way. He's coming soon. You better get your life in order, right? You better live a holy and a pure life before God. Why? Because Jesus is coming again, right? I just don't look at it in the sense of one day I'm walking down the sidewalk and the next minute I'm a pile of clothes, okay? For me, it's not like that. For me, it's like this, okay? For me, it's like this. There are signs that precede his coming that I'm able to discern by the word and by the spirit. And when I see those things happening, I know this is going to be a time of great deception in the world. It's going to be a time of great persecution and that my faith needs to be strong and I need to be on the alert and I need to be warning people in my life. They, their faith needs to be strong and they need to be on the alert so that they're not swept away in the deception. Okay? 
And, and yet at the same time, I know that those things are bringing the eminent return of Jesus to which I am fixed with my hope on that day. My great hope is the return of Christ. Why? Because when he comes, I get a new body and I never sin again. Amen. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to being ultimately delivered from the power of sin. Because I'm a practicing sinner. And I hate it. Of all the things I loathe in the world, let me tell you, it's my own sin. So I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus comes. I just happened to read the scripture in a way that I see very clearly him saying that there are signs that precede his coming. So I can expect the imminent return of Christ, yet being aware of the signs that will directly precede his coming. So if you will, um, that's how I answer those things. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24 and following, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. What did Jesus say it would be like just before he comes? He said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12, Paul is describing what this coming of the man of lawlessness looks like. He says, verse 9, that is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why do they perish? Because they don't receive the love of the truth. So what happens instead? They get deceived by the deceiver. He says, verse 11, And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see what characterizes this guy? Deception. Powerful deception. Deception that's so powerful he does signs and wonders. Jesus says great signs and wonders. That's who this guy is. Because of this deception, we are to be keenly aware of the season of his coming and pay close attention to the events leading up to his coming so that we will not be taken unaware. This is how Jesus and Paul both spoke about our expectancy of Christ's coming. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 37 and following, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and given in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand, until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Okay, just I want to enlighten you. My view is that's the rapture that's in view. When he says two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left, that's, that is the rapture of the church. That's taking place. I understand that that's not everybody's view, but that's how I see it. Okay? That's how I see it. The difference is, one has faith because they've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. The other has not. One is saved, the other is not. One loves the truth, and one is swept away in deception. So he tells us, he warns us, therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert for what? I mean, you understand? Yeah. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. It's going to be a time of smoke and mirrors. 
going to be a time when your faith is under assault like never has been before. This, of course, was Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 and following. He said there, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Here's what Paul's saying. Saying, let us be alert. Let us pay attention. Why? So that that day won't overtake us like a thief. This important truth of imminency needs to be held in correct balance. On one hand, Jesus taught us that we do not know the day or hour, but at the same time was saying that we should be aware of the events surrounding his coming so that we would not be caught unaware. Jesus made explicit statements about the fact that we were to be on the alert and to pay attention to the signs of his coming so that we would not be caught unaware and that this day would not overtake us as a thief. For example, in Mark 13, Jesus says in verse 23, But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Or in Mark 13, 28 and following, he says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come, become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. And of course, what things is he talking about? All the signs that he described in Mark 13, verses 1 through 27. <laughs> right? Or in Luke 21, verses 27 through 31, this is another recording of the Olivet Discourse. There, he, uh, Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. These exhortations also had the specific purpose of calling us to live in a way which is pleasing to the Lord in all purity and holiness and to glorify him with our lives. Jesus and the apostles used the doctrine of eminency primarily to teach us to glorify God minute by minute in our lives, living in purity and expectancy and not to become lazy, drunken, or distracted from our faith. For example, in Luke 21, verse 34 and following, Jesus says, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. What's he saying? He's saying, Don't let my coming come on you suddenly like a trap by being drunken or, or not paying attention or being distracted by the worries of life. Right? Instead, he says, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you don't be distracted. You don't be drunken. Be sober. Pay attention to what's happening in the world. Here's what he says. Listen, don't be weighed down with dissipation. Don't be so worn down with the worries and cares of life. You're not paying attention to your faith. You're not taking heed to the warnings that are in the word of God. Don't be uh, taken away by the worries of life. Right? Jesus said the worries and the cares of life, they choke out the fruit from our life. Amen? He said, don't let that happen so that the day comes on you suddenly like a trap. Why? Because it's going to come on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. What's his point? His point is you and everybody else is going to see this. That's his point. Verse 36, but keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In fact, the parable of the ten, you know, if you're a pre-tribber or a post-tribber, those verses apply. <laughs> right? 
If you're a pre-tribber, you simply think that that means that Christ's uh, coming for the rapture happens before the tribulation begins, the seven-year tribulation, right? And so what are you to do? Well, you're to be on the alert. You're to be paying attention. You're to be living a holy life, right? Or if you believe that the second coming of Christ is the day of the deliverance from the church from the great tribulation period itself, right? Then you see that day as the day of your deliverance. You see that day as the day of, of, of your rejoicing and, and uh, reuniting with the dead in Christ, right? And if you will, either way you apply that, this truth applies, okay? In fact, the parable of the ten virgins was designed to explain this truth very clearly. Matthew 25, verse 10 and following. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Other apostles made it very clear that this knowledge was to cause us to be alert, forsaking the ways of the world and growing in the faith. For example, 2 Peter verse 3, 17 and following, uh, Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But instead, right, instead of um, falling from steadfastness, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so Peter's, of course, the context of Second Peter 3 there is the day of the Lord. And he's saying the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected, right? So he says then, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Be alert, right? Don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Instead, what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. John writes in chapter 3, Verses 2 and following, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Right? So here he's talking about the appearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. And he says, we're going to be like him. Our, our earthly bodies are going to be conformed into the likeness of his heavenly body. Right? Philippians 3.20. And um, Colossians 3 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then what? Then you also shall appear with him in glory. Right? And so uh, John writes of this. And he says, When we see him, uh, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Verse 3, listen. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. How do you know you have your hope fixed on the second coming of Christ? You purify yourself. So it is with every born-again Christian. They seek for their life to be holy before God. Right? This is the difference between somebody who's truly saved and somebody who's not. True saving faith has marks that prove its validity. Amen? True saving faith is living, it's active. True saving faith opens up its mouth and speaks as a witness to Christ. Amen? True saving faith is not taken away and carried away by the error of unprincipled men. It doesn't fall away from its steadfastness. It doesn't shrink back. Right? But it perseveres, it presses on. It trusts in Christ. It looks to Christ as its only hope. Amen? True saving faith is distinguishable from mere profession. A lot of people talk about being Christians. How many of them carry it out? How many of them walk the talk? 
That's, that's Peter's point. That's John's point. That's Jesus' point. When he says, be on the alert and be ready. Being a mere professor in that, do you know the ten virgins? Look, they're all waiting for the bridegroom. They're all claiming to be Christians. Right? But only the wise virgins go. Why? Because the foolish virgins are off doing whatever it is they do. When the Christ returns. Are you with me? Therefore, we are to be on the alert and ready for the imminent return of our Lord in glory. With this in mind, we are to be keenly aware of the events that Jesus and the apostles warned us would directly precede his coming. These things, says Paul, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. This apostasy is in the Greek apostasia, meaning revolt or rebellion. And in the biblical context, refers to a rebellion from the true faith. Okay, now we're talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. When Paul says, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Okay? Paul's use of the definite article, he says, the rebellion. Okay? shows clearly that it was a known event in the minds of the Thessalonians. This is clear from the fact that Paul gives no explanation of this apostasy as if they knew full well what he had referred to. You see, he says, unless the apostasy comes first. He doesn't say unless apostasy comes first. He's using a definite article. And he's saying unless the apostasy comes first. You get the point? He's got a specific apostasy a future specific apostasy in mind when he says the apostasy. So he's, he's saying in verses 1 through 3, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, listen, that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness be revealed. It was clear in their mind that they knew what this apostasy was. Why? Because he makes no attempt to explain it. He just calls it the re- in, in English, in NASB, the rebellion, right? And um, it's very interesting to consider what is this apostasy? Where is that in Jesus' teaching, right? Remember how I keep telling you, Paul is just telling us what Jesus told us in the Olivet Discourse? Well, I want to address that. Where is this in Jesus' teaching? <laughs> Uh, commentators debate whether this apostasy is a falling away from the faith by a multitude or the final abomination of desolation act by the Antichrist spoken of by Daniel, Daniel 9.27, or Jesus in Matthew 24.15 and in the Revelation chapter 13 verses 14 through 15. Okay, so you're familiar with the abomination of desolation. That's the thing that the Antichrist does, Right where in Revelation 13, he's setting up an image and demanding to be worshipped, right? Um, Jesus refers to that in Matthew 24, 15, where he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, right? So that brings us into the context of Daniel as well, which is in chapter 9, verse 27, okay? So some commentators believe that when he says the apostasy... That unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness be revealed. Well, it kind of makes sense, that view, from the standpoint of if the apostasy is the abomination of desolation, that will certainly reveal the Antichrist, won't it? And so the two events are tied together. The apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness be revealed. In other words, he will be revealed how? By setting himself up in the temple of God and demanding himself to be worshipped as God and exalting himself above every so-called God. And Paul says, opposing God. Okay? Um, So, is Paul saying that unless the apostasy comes first, meaning the abomination of desolation, or is Paul saying the apostasy meaning the great falling away from the faith at the very end of the days? Okay? That's also in view in Jesus' teaching when he's in Matthew 24, verses 9 and following. Right? He says, then you will be uh, handed over and they will kill you and persecute you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Right? What does he say? Then he says, uh, (laughs) good night. 
He says, at that time, many will fall away, right? And betray and hate one another, right? And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, he says, but he who endures till the end shall be saved, right? So at G- in Jesus' mind, when this time of being killed and persecuted and hated by all nations happens, he says, at that time, many people will fall away and betray and hate one another. So if Paul has the abomination of desolation in mind, or if he has this end time falling away, a general rebellion from the faith, either way, okay, that's present in the teaching of Jesus. Do you see that? Since Paul does not, here's this thing, it's real clear with the commentators. Since Paul does not describe what the apostasy is, we don't know specifically what he's referring to, okay? It's one or the other, that's obvious, but, but we're not sure. So I frankly don't have any heartache thinking about it either way. Why? Because it all happens at the same time, if you will, generally speaking, all about the same time. And both will happen. The, the abomination of desolation will be a tremendous great rebellion that will take place at the revealing of the Antichrist. And at that time, there will be many, many people turning away from the faith and betraying and hating one another. Are you with me? So either way, it, it, it happens and it takes place. Okay. Regardless of which event Paul had in mind, the meaning of the passage does not change. For when Antichrist has risen to power to deceive the nations, that will also be a time of tremendous deception characterized by a falling away from the true faith. Paul speaks of this event in unison with the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Here he clearly has Antichrist in view. The fact that he is revealed speaks of the fact that he is in existence before he is revealed, but not clearly visible as to who he is until, of course, the time comes and he is revealed. You got that? You see what the idea is he's being revealed. Well, what does that mean? Well, beforehand he wasn't what? Revealed. Revealed. So there's a time when he's there, but he's not revealed. And then comes a time when he gets revealed, right? Or if you will, it becomes clear who he is, right? What's going to make that clear? The abomination of desolation is going to make that crystal clear for everybody to see, okay? All right, we're ending here. Notice... Here, he is the man of lawlessness, and he is distinguished from Satan himself in verses 8 and 9. Okay, listen. He's the man of lawlessness. This is not Satan. This is a man. He's called the Antichrist. And in the text of 2 Thessalonians 2, he's distinguished from Satan in verses 8 and 9 and verses 3 and 4. Okay, verse 3 and 4 is a man. Verse 8 and 9 talks about him coming in accord with the lawlessness of Satan. But he, is, he himself is not Satan. Got that? In this context, Paul says the man of lawlessness is now being restrained by some definite personage, verse 6 and 7, and will also be the one whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Okay? Paul goes on to describe that Jesus is going to destroy this man personally. Okay? This man is titled by Paul as the man of lawlessness and opposed to a man of lawlessness. This definite article indicates he is the one man spoken of in Scripture in many places who works a tremendous amount of destruction and evil in the days directly preceding the coming of our Lord. This is, in fact, Paul's main point in verses 1 through 3. That is, the single event of verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, is going to be preceded by this lawless one that it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So ends the comments on verse 3. And I'll pick up with verse 4 next week. Lord willing. Okay, wait, next week? Yeah, next week. Okay, let's pray. God, our Father, we... We thank you, Lord, that you have instructed us what the signs will be, that we do not have to be taken away and deceived with the rest of the world. I pray, Lord, that we would look at these verses of Scripture very soberly, that we would consider them in all seriousness 
and seek to understand what you have so clearly portrayed in your word. I pray, Lord, that this would be becoming more and more clear to us as we focus on these texts and that you would help us to understand more and more all of the great warnings that you have given us. I pray, O God, that we would not be swept away with deception, that, Lord, we would not be swept away by the worries and the cares of life, but that our faith would be living and active, that, Lord, we would be bearing fruit and serving you with our life, that when people see our life, it's evident that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are a witness of him, that there's no doubt that we belong to Christ, that there's enough evidence to convict us of being a Christian. Oh, Lord, I pray for each and every one within the sound of the hearing of my voice, that, Lord, if they are not in Christ, that you would draw them near to yourself, that you would open up their eyes to their desperate state and show them that Christ is indeed the provision for their sins and that through him and faith in him and repentance from sin, that they can be reconciled to you. We thank you for this great privilege of having so many words that you have spoken to us. I pray that we would take them to heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.